Well, Merry Christmas and uh, welcome to 1122. And if you were looking for the feel-good sermon of the season, you're in the wrong place. Um, Amanda's a good friend of, of Gretchen, so I know her story. As I watch that, especially in light of what it means where Isaiah prophesies that unto us a child would be born and he would be wonderful counselor, okay, uh, mighty God, got it, everlasting father, prince of peace. What do you do when you don't have peace? And I watched that video and I, it just made me think, what did it cost you to follow Jesus? What did it cost you to follow Jesus? For Amanda, it cost her everything, everything. She looked at the face of her family, she looked at the face of Jesus, and she said, I will follow Jesus. I got to be honest, you know what it cost me? Not much. A couple of dates in college with some cuties that were trying to kill, steal, and destroy me. <laughs> oh, you know them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, I followed Jesus. Things, you know, my decisions got better. My friends got better. Uh, it cost me some pain, some scars that I did not have to go through. And yet there are people in this room, in Bay Meadows, in the sanctuary, and all around the world, and it, and it feels like it cost them absolutely everything. What we're going to look at today as we, as we study the scriptures is that I think Jesus would say, no matter what the cost, that it is worth it, that it is worth it. And see, some of you, you, you're following after Jesus, but the things in your life don't seem super peaceful right now. In fact, it's almost like sometimes he makes it worse. If you could just leave him alone, then you could do it the way you wanted to do, and maybe you could even get, get through it a little better. And nothing makes that worse than Christmas, does it? I mean, nothing highlights pain, especially some good old family pain, like Christmas time. And, um, and honestly, some of your friends, and especially Facebook, make it way worse. Because you're scrolling through Facebook and it looks like everybody else's family looks perfect. And your family is jacked up. Or you go to a disciple group and you got that one person in disciple group. And during prayer time, they always have the, I have a praise report. And you think, oh, crud. Seriously, they're like, God is just so good. He's the everlasting father. I was just praying and had, I finished all my Christmas shopping. And you're like, that's why I hate you right there already, okay? <laughs> and my daughter, she wanted this uh, Hatchimal, all right? And I just had a check in my spirit that the Lord wanted her to have that. And they're out everywhere. And so I was driving down the road and I was just praying, God, heavenly father, please answer my prayer. And then the spirit led me into Target. And then right there, I had a parking spot right up front. He's a good, good father. And then I walked in, and it was the last Hatchimal. He is my Prince of Peace. <laughs> and that's when you think, well, God loves you, but I cannot stand you, okay? Seriously, that's what you're praying about? You're praying about that crap? And I'm praying about, like, my parents are lost, or uh, I had, a, I had a, a family member just abuse me, and I got to be around him at Christmas. And you think, where is he? He's supposed to be the Prince of Peace, but... I mean, I look around my world, it ain't looking super peaceful. <clears throat> and the first, when I saw that video, the first thing that came to my mind was John chapter 6. It's not in your notes, it's just where my mind went. In John chapter 6, if you look at it from the, from the uh, perspective of the disciples, the beginning of John chapter 6, everything's going awesome. Jesus is preaching and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus does this miracle, super cool miracle. He feeds 5,000 men. If everybody's got a date and a kid, you know, there's 15,000 people there. And Jesus, the, the, the people are out of 
food and they're hungry and the disciples come and like they're hungry and he's like, all right, watch this. He hijacks this kid's lunchable, he blesses it and he's like, here, hand us out. They're like, really, just cheese and crackers? And he's handing out his fish and bread and then there's 12 baskets of leftovers. And you gotta think in that moment, Peter's talking to the disciples and be like, I told y'all, this is working, man. We are blowing up, all right? We're gonna be in charge of the world and I told you it was good to drop our nets and follow after him because look, we're gonna be senior VP of everything. And then next, Jesus walks on water. You know, you know, Peter's like, boom, look at that, walks on water. And then the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. There's 15,000, 20,000 people there. And Jesus, I mean, this thing is blowing up. They're multi-site, multiple locations. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this thing is going great. And then Jesus teaches that he is the bread of life. And you know, Peter and the disciples, they got their notes. They're like, oh, I am the bread of life. I know what you're doing there. I am is the same uh, word as Yahweh, which means you are claiming equality with God. Get him, Jesus. He goes, I am the bread of life. And then he keeps going in his teaching in John 6. You should read it this afternoon at home when the game's over in like the first quarter, okay? Uh, <laughs> and then he keeps going and he says, I'm the bread of life, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. To which I think the boys are like, do what? What are you talking about? Eat your flesh and drink your blood. Whoa, don't know. Then it goes on to say that the people begin to grumble and they say, this is a hard teaching. You think? I mean, I just teach, you gotta go on a mission trip and sponsor a compassion kid. No problem. Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And so the Bible says that, that Peter goes up to Jesus and has a conversation. In my mind, this is the way it works, okay? In my mind, G, uh, Peter's thinking, uh-oh, Jesus is ruining everything. And so he goes to the crowd and he's like, hey, listen, uh, the Messiah is just kind of tired right now from all the miracles, so we're going to take an intermission here during the sermon. And uh, why don't you guys just talk amongst yourself? Maybe you could go over to the part where you're walking on water, have snacks. we got free snacks. we got 12 baskets full left over from the last miracle. Remember that. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing? You're screwing everything up because the people are leaving. We're supposed to get more and more and more people, and you're making less and less people because of you. What are you doing? And then Jesus says to Peter these words, you don't want to leave too, do you? Do you know why he said that? Because Peter wanted to leave too. Now here's the thing. Jesus doesn't even fix the situation. In one second, Jesus could have explained to Peter what he's actually talking about. He could have said, hey, listen, I'm not going to actually have him like come up here and bite me on the hand and drink the blood. But uh, in, a, in, a, in a year or so, I'm going to be crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. I'm going to rise to the Father. Okay? And then one day I'm coming back. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave this thing called communion or the Lord's Supper so that you can always remember uh, my life, death, and resurrection. And so it's not actually my blood, it's not actually my flesh, it's just like a little Jesus thing, okay? If you're going to pass them out in rows and people will eat at church, they'll get stuck in the roof of your mouth, okay? It's not gross like you think. And it's not like my blood. You don't have to drink my blood. That, that really just means if you're Catholic, then it's wine, and if you're Baptist, it's Welch's. That's what it is, so just relax. And he could explain it. Hey, yo, come back, come back, come back. That's not, what, that's not exactly what I'm saying. And he does not fix the situation. He does not explain himself. And he looks at Peter and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter looks around at his circumstances, and he's thinking, uh-oh, I've made a bad decision. What do I do? What do I do? And Peter's answer helps me when my world isn't this peaceful, easy feeling. And Peter says this, to where shall we go? To where shall we go? 
In other words, if, I'm, if I leave you, Jesus, I gotta go to something else. He goes, and, and you're the only one that offers eternal life. In other words, Jesus, I'm not sure about my circumstances right now, but I'm still pretty sure that you're sovereign over all of these circumstances, even the ones that I don't understand. So what do you do when the Prince of Peace and you look around your world and things aren't super peaceful? And especially, especially during the Christmas holidays when you are walking into some family situation, some work situation, some roommate situation, and, and, man, Christmas just exasperates that stuff like crazy, doesn't it? I mean, there's no pain like some good old Christmas pain. And some of you are in a mess in your family because of you. Come back. Most weeks, that's what we talk about, the wretched blackheartedness that is sitting in your chair right now, all right? So a few weeks, we'll come back, hold the mirror up to us, so we will own our own junk. But there's sometimes you're in a mess of a family situation. It is not because of what you have done, but what has been done to you. And even sometimes, it's because of Jesus, because we are following after him. And so, if you got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus turns this whole idea of peace totally upside down. I want to give you the context. We're going to pick it up in verse 26. Verses 1 through 25, Jesus gathers all his apostles, the 12 apostles together. And he's going to send them out like on a mission trip. And he gives them this warning before he sends them out. And the warning is basically, get ready, boys. This is going to be tough. Just take a little bit of stuff with you, but you're not going to get paid. It's actually going to cost you all your money. And in verse 16, he says, behold, I am sending you out as, a sh as sheep in the midst of wolves. To which if you're one of the guys, aren't you like, whoa, whoa, I thought you were the good shepherd. That is bad shepherding. What are you doing here? You see, he is sending them out, and he warns them, you're going to be persecuted People are going to come after you like crazy. Saddle up, boys. This is going to be a brutal experience. This is not going to be a peaceful, easy feeling. I've said this a million times. If you want a comfortable, peaceful, easy life, do not follow after Jesus. Because he will, he will walk you into some places that are, that are brutal. So it's in that context that as he's giving the disciples kind of this pep talk before he sends them out. And he's not doing this like, you're good enough, you're strong enough, and dog on it, people like you. You can do this. That is not the talk. It is. You get ready. This is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. In verse 26, he keeps going. He says, so have no fear of them. The them is the people that will be persecuting him. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Verse 28. And do not fear. This is the second time he says it. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. To which if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, is that supposed to make me feel better? Hey, what's the worst they can do, kill you? Yeah, that's the part we're worried about. And Jesus is like, well, don't worry about that part, okay? Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, as your fear of God increases, your fear of man decreases. And that fear of God doesn't mean like you're afraid of God a little bit, but just reverently and respectfully. That he's the almighty, awesome creator and king of the entire universe, just happens to also be your dad. And he says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So why not fear? Here's why not to fear, because the almighty maker, sovereign of the universe, also he is preeminent, no doubt, and he's also intimate. 
So he's in charge of all things for all eternity. And yet, there's not even a little Tweety Bird in eastern Africa that is allowed to fall off the branch and hit the ground without the permission of the almighty sovereign God. And he's in charge. He's so in charge that he knows, he knows the numbers of hair on your head. Some less than others, no doubt, okay? I'm just trying to keep it all per capita the same, all right? He knows how many you have, how many you're going to have, how many you used to have. Ladies, you know, man, he knows what color it used to be and it's going to be and all of those things, okay? He knows. So why should we not be afraid? Because he knows. Verse 31, fear not. This is the third time. When Jesus tells you three things in a row, you really ought to pay attention. Fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than sparrows. Like, what does that have to do with the Prince of Peace? Here's, here's basically what he's saying. Um, Jesus is basically saying, here's why, here's why you don't have to fear. Do you know who your dad is? Do you know who your dad is? And, and he is preeminent, knows all things, and he is intimate. He is your father, and he's your dad. And so you don't have to worry because he's still got the whole world in his hands. You know, my kids don't love the dark. They're getting better at it now. But my kids historically have not loved the dark. And Gretchen will say to JP, JP, take the trash out. Uh, you know, when it's nighttime, we got to go around the back of the house, out to the cans, that kind of thing. And he doesn't love it. And he's like, Dad, will you go with me? And I'm like, are you afraid of the dark? He said, nope, not at all. Just want you to go with me, all right? And on our way out, multiple times he'd ask, okay, Dad, let's just say if the zombie apocalypse has happened, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Buddy, that's easy. Two in the chest, one in the face. That's what I'm going to do. And he goes like... I knew that, Dad. I knew that. You see, here's what he knows. He knows who his dad is. He knows who his dad is. And so what Jesus is saying is the reason that you don't have to worry is because your dad still has the whole world in his hands. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Basically, what Jesus is saying is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, to live as Christ, to die as gain. No matter what this costs you, the reason you do not have to fear is because the real prize is Jesus. And if he is with you, then you have nothing, nothing to fear. Now, that's all context for me to talk about what Jesus says when he talks about peace. Check this out, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh-oh. Kind of jacks up my whole sermon series, doesn't it, when we get to the Prince of Peace part of Christmas? And what do you do about Luke 2? Luke 2 is the announcement of the angels of the coming of 8-pound, 6-ounce baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. It says this in Luke 2, 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Just a side note, he's not pleased with everybody. But the angels promise when Jesus shows up, here comes peace, right? Or what do you do about Philippians chapter 4? We studied this on the Wonderful Counselor Week. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What do you do with that? Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Or Jesus himself, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So how do those things line up? They seem contradictory, don't they? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, not peace. The thing is, is what do you mean when you say peace? I can tell you what most of us think about when we think about peace. We think about us. We think about us. We want all the things in our world to line up. We think about a personal, peaceful, easy feeling. 
We are talking about favorable circumstances, comfort, safety, and self-satisfaction. That's primarily what we mean. We are thinking circumstantial peace. When Jesus says, I don't, I don't come to bring that kind of peace, but to bring a sword, Jesus is talking about the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's the Bible word for peace. It means as it should be, whole, connected with God. The Greek word for peace is irene. I just find that humorous. I don't know why, all right? And so Jesus says, I didn't come to bring circumstantial peace. I came to bring a sword. When Jesus says that, he doesn't bring a sword like a barbarian raider intent on pillaging and destruction. Instead, Jesus brings a sword like a surgeon brings a scalpel to cut out the diseased parts so that we could have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And then he keeps going, verse 35. And now he wants to dig around in your family. Some of you are going to hear this for the first time and you're going to go, oh, wow. So this is why my family is all jacked up. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I think that was going to happen with or without Jesus, but he just threw it in there. <laughs> verse 36, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this is important. Jesus isn't saying that our job as Christians is to bring strife into our family. But he is saying that if we follow him, that might bring strife into our family. You see, swords divide, and he says there could be a division. If the core belief of you is different than the core belief, even of your family, then it's like two ships with different destinations. At some point, those two things are leaving one another. They are heading in different directions, and there's an intense amount of tension and pain there. So there are, listen, I just know this to be true. Just like the video you saw, there are a whole lot of you, there literally are thousands of 1122ers right now that this will be your very first Christmas as a Christian. And it's, it's just gonna be different when you get home. A part of the reason that it's gonna be different is because you have begun to change. That God is sanctifying you. Because of his grace, you are obeying. And now uh, you just, there's some things in your life that are different. And, and your life is going to expose some of your family's sin, and they are not going to like that. You shine light in dark places, the darkness does not like it. You ever been to a matinee? Dark, 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 and you just bust the exit door straight to the parking lot, and you just hit, that light hits you in the face. What are you tempted to immediately do, right? You kind of go, whoa, and you want to run back into the darkness. And so people will get really defensive around you, even your own family. And then out comes the, the defensiveness and the stabs at you. Oh, I guess you're a Christian now, huh? Are you part of that cult 1122 with your stickers and your plaid shirts and bald head and all that stuff, you know? <laughs> or they may go deeper and mean, just mean. Oh, does this mean you're a racist homophobe now because you're a Christian? Or I can't believe you would give money and sponsor kids or take your vacation time. And I mean, it could go that way. And in that, Jesus says, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love our family. What Jesus is saying is, unless you love Jesus most, you can't love your family. That if Jesus is not before all things in every area of your life, then he is not in your life. And what happens to every single one of us, because we are idol-making factories, what happens to every single one of us is we are all tempted to take a good thing that is a gift from God, make it a God thing, and that's a really bad thing. 
So we say that Jesus is our savior, but actually our wife and kids are our functional savior. In other words, our life is not okay unless they are all pleased and worshiped. And here's what happens if we love our family more than we love Jesus and we treat our family like an idol or a functional savior. We heap upon them expectations that they cannot fill and they cannot bear up under that kind of weight and we're disappointed and they feel too much pressure and nobody wins. And what Jesus is saying is the only way that you can love them rightly is that I have to be before all things and you have to love me most. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that we love because he first loved us. This is a part of what Jesus is saying. And he is saying even this, no matter what it costs, it's worth it. No matter what it costs, it's worth it. Now, the difference between being a Christian and even in that video is for a Christian, there's no bad association. That we are not called to reject one another. What are we called to do? Love one another. This is why I would highly encourage you, if you have a tolerance sticker on your uh, car, rip it off, put something about Jesus. Because Christians are not called to tolerate, we're called to love. Tolerance just means, okay, I guess. That's what it is, all right? That is not the call of a Christian, that we are called to even love our enemies. People that persecute us, we are to love. People that do us wrong, we are to love. People that we don't like, we are to love. We are never, ever, ever to reject people because of what they believe or what they, or even the way they treat us, but we are called to love one another. Verse 38, and he goes on to say, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, you realize what this means? You see, there are some of us in the room that following after Jesus may cause like some awkward dinners around the Christmas table, for sure. And, that, and that's legitimate pain. I mean, it really is. I'm not, I am not uh, demeaning that whatsoever. But this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was written for all people in all times and is relevant to every people group in every generation in all the earth until Jesus returns. You know what this means for millions of people right now? That to follow after Jesus isn't just a strained relationship. To follow after Jesus means an honor killing at the hands of their very own family members. And Jesus looks into those kinds of situations. And he says, even if that's what it costs, it is worth it. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And when he said that, nobody thought a decorative earrings and necklace. They thought, they thought a tool of complete torture, which leads me to ask this question. Are we consumer Christians or Jesus followers? Those are two very different things. You see, do we follow Jesus because we hope just to get Jesus, or do we follow after Jesus because we're actually looking for our best life now? We're looking for um, our finances are jacked up and we need to get that straightened out so maybe we'll follow after Jesus so uh, he'll hook up our finances. Or we need some friends and we're not really into the Jesus thing but we heard that Jesus' people are supposed to be nice to us so we'll follow after Jesus so that we can get some friends. Or some, some, uh, you just need a date. Follow after Jesus but what I really want is a date. And you know it's true because this is the ninth church service you've been at this weekend. Just on the hunt. Well, good luck. And honestly, I think, I think part of the reason that we do have so many consumer Christians, a lot of it is my fault. It's totally my fault. Churches like ours might actually feed into that. 
Because look, how hard is it to follow Jesus in Jacksonville? I said, we make it super easy to come to church, right? We put a location in every neighborhood in the whole city is what it sounds like we're going for. You can just walk to them all. And uh, if you park far away, it's like six spots away. We got a little golf cart. Hey, can we take you? We'd hate for you to have to walk all the way. I mean, I know you can see it. You could get there with a pigeon wedge, but you know, come on. <laughs> and then you come in, you got greeters everywhere. Hey, how you doing? Everybody's nice. Get greeted nine times on the way in. The music's cool. The seating's comfortable. You can drop your kids off, right? Just free babysitting. All right? We're discipling your kids, but you know what I'm saying. If you're, you don't even care, you're just dropping them off. Thank God. I don't have to put with them for a minute. And if they're crazy, if you had crazy kids, then we'll put the little number up there, right? Hey, your kid's crazy. But we won't tell you that. We won't tell you the truth. You come get your kid. Nobody's going to be like, he's demon-possessed. You might want an old priest and a, new, and a young priest, okay? No, nah, we'll just we wouldn't be nice. Oh, listen, they just miss you and we're praying for you and want you back. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and if we're not careful, we make it doggone easy, maybe too easy, to follow after Jesus. And he says, if you follow after me, it's going to cost you your entire life, and it's worth it. And when you actually follow after Jesus and get Jesus, it doesn't feel like a cost necessarily. It's like giving up thirst for a cold drink of water. That's what it's like. So are we just consumer Christians? It's just kind of convenient for our lifestyle to do this whole Christianity thing. Are we actually Jesus followers? 205 years ago, there was a missionary named Adoniram Judson, the first Baptist missionary to India. And he was courting this girl named Anna. And he was going to ask his potential in-laws for permission to marry them, marry their daughter, and take her to India in 1811. And so he writes this letter, and here's how he asks. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. This is not how I asked for Gretchen's hand in marriage. <laughs> I spoke nothing of the glory of God or the heathens that would be saved for the acclamation of Christ. We'd been dating a little while and I showed up at her house. And I got her sister to distract her, take her back there for a minute. And I sat down with both her parents, my potential in-laws, the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life. The number one fear in America is speaking in public. I do this a lot, no problem. Sitting in front of Joy and Randy, I was shaken to the bones. I don't even remember exactly what I said, but it was kind of the opposite of this. I was trying to tell them how good it would be for Gretchen if they would let me have her. And so I said, can I marry her? And Randy, my father-in-law, said, she is tough to live with. That's what he said. <laughs> and I would just like to say two things. She's not. 
and she's here. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> That's quite a bit different than this. Her dad said yes. If it cost me my daughter for the glory of God, go ahead. And she did. She married this guy, goes to India, and never came home. Never came home. If you go there today to the, the spot where they planted churches, there's about a half a million followers of Jesus and about 4,000 churches that can be traced back to 1811 in this faithful couple. Are you a consumer, Christian, or do you think he is the pearl of great price that is worth selling everything for that you would get him? And that's not just 200 years ago. <clears throat> On January 22nd, 1999, Graham Stewart Staines, a missionary also in India, he and his two boys were asleep in their car at a Christian rally and some radical Hindus burned them alive in their car. They died. The father and the two boys. About two weeks later, the national paper interviewed the wife and she came out with this statement. Her name was Gladys. And Gladys said this, The Lord God is always with me to guide me and help me to try to accomplish the work of Graham and my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I sometimes wonder why Graham was killed and also what made his assassins behave in such a brutal manner on the night of the 22nd of January, 1999. It is far from my mind to punish the persons who were responsible for the death of my husband Graham and my two children. But it is my desire and hope that they would repent and would be reformed. And she went on to say, to beg the international community to please continue to send missionaries to that part of India because no matter the cost, it was worth it. So in that moment, where is the Prince of Peace? Jesus goes on to say in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in that kind of twisted sentence, this is where we actually find peace. You see, because Jesus says, if you're looking for circumstantial peace, you'll never find it. You won't find it in your family. You won't find it in your job. You won't find it in your relationships. If you find your life in the things that this world has to offer, I mean, if you accomplish every goal you've ever set out for, if you make all the money, if you go on all the trips, if, if your Christmas card is the best-looking Christmas card of everybody here, and you just grab on to the things of this world, the problem is, is this world begins to grab on to you. And it leads to dissatisfaction and despair because you were created for so much more than this. We live in a world that cannot satisfy. But if we can get beyond our circumstances and begin to look at our Savior, then we can understand that He is sovereign even over our circumstances that don't make sense. And there's a great amount of peace and an amazing amount of freedom when you don't have to grab onto the things of this world and especially when this world cannot grab onto you because you have grabbed onto the one that is sovereign and king over the entire universe and he and he alone is more than enough. That's how the Apostle Paul can say things like to live as Christ, to die as gain. This world has nothing for me, but if, this Lord, if, the, if the Lord is going to leave me in this world, then I am going to make the most of it for his glory and for my joy. So Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, Jesus did not come to bring peace. This is what he's saying, but he is peace. There's a big difference there. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace like you'd bring a pound cake to a party. Here you go. Here's some peace. And I'm going to drop this off. The reason why, because when the cake's gone, then the peace is gone. 
Jesus is saying, I'm not here to bring circumstantial peace. I'm not necessarily going to make everything in your life better because I am better than life. He is peace. The peace of our sovereign Savior is greater than any circumstance that we could ever live in. Which, by the way, is the heresy of the prosperity gospel. I, I don't understand what people that teach and preach the, if you love Jesus, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, what about Jesus? Was he healthy? He's doing pretty good to about 33, came to a sudden stop. Was he wealthy? No, he made himself poor. He was a homeless man. Was he happy? Sometimes. Sometimes not. You see, the problem is the, the core of the heresy in the prosperity gospel is that you're just using Jesus to get something. That something is actually your God and idol and not Jesus himself. The prize of heaven, the prize of heaven is not streets of gold. The prize of heaven is not even being reunited with the people we love. That's just, that's just kind of some extra. The prize of heaven is Jesus, and he will meet every need and want that we could ever have. So he doesn't come to bring peace to fix all of our circumstances. He is peace. And when we look for peace in our circumstances, here's the problem. That we take the keys to our happiness. We take the keys to our satisfaction. We take the keys to, to our contentment, and we hand it out to a whole bunch of imperfect people and expect them to act perfect. And unless they all get their act together, then our peace situation is all jacked up. And it is magnified at Christmas. So you take those keys and you hand them to your girlfriend or boyfriend. You hand them to your spouse. You hand them to your parents. Now, y'all treat me right. You hand them to your kids. You better be grateful this year. When you open that present, the glory of God better shine through your eyeballs and light up the Christmas tree, okay? Your mama works hard for that stuff. You hand them out. I mean, you hand them to all these people. You hand them to Al Roker. The weather, weather better be perfect, Al, okay? And then you sit back and you wait. And if all of them aren't exactly right, you're, we're discontent. See, that's circumstantial peace. Here's the problem with that. Even if this year's the greatest Christmas of all time, you know what the problem is? Guess what you do next year? You'll compare it to last year. And it'll never be as good as the old days. So the key is to take all those keys back and to hand them, not to the one that's just going to fix all the circumstances, but the one that is sovereign over all the circumstances, you hand those to Jesus. And some of you are walking in to some intense pain this Christmas, either the loss of a loved one or prodigal children, or you've got to sit next to, at Christmas dinner, some family member who has sinned against you in a horrific way. So what does the Prince of Peace do for you in that kind of situation? Well, there's a couple of things. One is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. If you can get your mind around this, it can change everything about Jesus being your Prince of Peace this Christmas. The Bible says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Let me talk to the new creations real quick, okay? If, if you're a new Christian, guess what? Here's what this means. You don't have to do the things that you used to do because you're not the person that you used to be. I know you jacked up Christmas last year. I know, right? Your, your, your mother-in-law said it for the last time, and you said, that's enough, and you flipped over to the table, and you threw the Jello salad, and you just started cussing your brains out. She's like, you got a potty mouth. You didn't have a potty mouth. You had a potty heart, but I've got good news. Jesus has ripped out that heart and given you a new heart. It's his. So this year could be totally different. Because you don't have to do the things you used to do because you're not the person you used to be. The way the Bible says it, it's way better. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So when Jesus came with that sword to divide things, he did not come to crush your family. He came to crush sin. And in that crushing of sin, when he was on the cross, and he says, it is finished, that sword was to crush and defeat sin. And when he crushed our sin and we receive and believe that, then we are reconciled unto him. And therefore, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Stick with me here for a second. What if, what if the reason that you are stepping into this family pain this year is a part of the plan of God for his glory? And what if you could surrender your personal circumstances this year for the purposes and the plan of God? And what if, to use his words, what if you this year are an ambassador of Christ to the people that have hurt you and that God is making his appeal to those people through you? And what if in that moment, that's where you find the peace of Christ that transcends all, our, all understanding? And so he says... God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when we come eyeball to eyeball with our family or coworkers or roommate or whoever it is and it feels like Jesus didn't bring, didn't bring peace but he brought a sword that he's not necessarily changing our circumstances, but he put you in those circumstances to change the hearts and lives of the people that he is appealing to by the love of a heavenly father, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. What if that's your job this year? Because when we begin to see it that way, when we begin to understand it that way, then these people that we honestly kind of hate, then we can respond the way God responded to us. And instead of reacting with hate, that we can respond in love. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your, father, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we love because he loves. And what if this year you begin to see, because you are a new creation, because you are a minister of reconciliation, because you have been reconciled to God, that when you walk into those painful situations, that the peace of Christ could come with you. Because he didn't come to just bring peace and change circumstances, but he is peace and he transforms lives. And the way that we love people that are unlovable is this. Number one, there's three things. Number one, <clears throat> that we accept. That we accept these people. You see, one of the first things, I mean, think about this. If, if, you, if you took a poll of Jacksonville and say, all right, first thing that comes to mind when you hear church person, do they say things like, they were just so accepting, and, and they're just full of grace and mercy. No, all you hear are negative things about judgmentalism and hypocrisy and those kind of things. And do you know why we accept people, regardless, especially if they're unacceptable? Because Christ accepted us even when we were unacceptable. 
I mean, think about this. Didn't God demonstrate his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us? Or did it go this way? Once you get your act together, then you can come before God. Now, man, God accepted me when I was altogether unacceptable. And it was his acceptance that began to change me, not the judgment. And so, number one, as you accept people, it's really hard to win over an enemy. It is much easier to win over a friend. And the second thing, first one's accept, the second is forgive. It's to forgive. The only way you're going to move forward in these painful situations is to forgive. Now, here's the problem with forgiveness, okay? Um, we hear these dumb things like, well, you just got to forgive and forget. Well, that's just dumb. You can't forgive and forget. Some awful things have happened to you, and you just can't forgive them. In fact, the Bible would, the Bible would say that we should forgive and remember that we have forgiven. And the other problem is, is that we try to forgive over and over and over, but we get really confused about our feelings and forgiveness. For, uh, feelings are feelings, whatever. You can't control them. They're all over the place. Uh, but, but, but forgiveness is a decision. And what the enemy tries to do like somebody's done you wrong, and it's a big deal. I mean, it's awful. And, and you try to, like, get over it, and you don't get over when you've been sinned against. You get over the flu. You have to forgive so that you can uh, continue on in your life. And if I were the enemy, let me tell you what I would do. If I were the enemy, I would try to get you to doubt forgiveness. And if we associate a feeling with forgiveness, then that's a problem, especially at Christmas. Because Christmas is all about feelings. That's why there's so many Christmas traditions. Because traditions are supposed to stir in us some old feelings, some positive feelings, so that we remember things. Right? I mean, that's what it is. That's why you have family traditions at your house in and around Christmas. And in fact, if this is your first Christmas together as a married couple, you are going to see a clash of tradition like you never have before. I remember our first Christmas, Gretchen was trying to open the presents on Christmas Eve. And I was like, what kind of pagan cult are you from? Well, you open them on Christmas Day because that's when his birthday is, you know? And you got to figure that stuff out. You got to work that stuff out. Well, here's the thing about Christmas, man. It's full of feelings because it's full of traditions. And sure enough, you, 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 watch, you watch Rudolph or Charlie Brown or Home Alone or you bake that gingerbread house or you break out the eggnog or you go caroling, whatever that thing is that stirs up some of those feelings you had back in the day, not only does it stir up those feelings, it stirs up all those other feelings about the pain that you had in your life. And let me tell you what I would do if I were your enemy. What I would do if I were your enemy, I would try to get you to believe your feelings instead of believing your forgiveness. And if I could convince you that forgiveness doesn't work because you still have these feelings, and I could undermine forgiveness, I think I could undermine the whole point of the gospel that God sent his son on a rescue mission to forgive you. And to have you begin to believe, well, gosh, if I can't forgive her, how in the world could an almighty God forgive me? And the enemy wins. But you see, forgiveness is not a feeling. If somebody has done you wrong and you need to forgive them, whether they're in your family or your roommate or whatever, you got two options. You can either replay the pain or you can release the pain. Those are your options. And if we replay the pain, and you know what I mean, you rehearse it in your mind over and over and over. You replay that time you went through it and what they said to you and how they did you wrong. And when you replay the pain, you relive the pain, and then what begins to happen is you react to the situation. You react to the situation. And you justify why we can hate those people because they have done you wrong. That is an option. It is. The other option is that we release the pain. The only way to release the pain is this. It's because you're not remembering what they have done to you. 
You are choosing to remember what Christ did for you. It's the only way to release the pain. And the moment you look at them and you think, well, they don't deserve this, then you remember what Jesus did for you and go, that's right, and I didn't deserve that. And you look at them and they go, well, they've done nothing to make it right. And then you look at what Jesus did for you and go, oh, yeah, and I have done nothing to make this right. <laughs> you know we pray this, right? You know, if you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, do you know what you're actually asking God? And the forgive those, forgive me as I forgive those who trespass against me. What you're saying is, God, how about hold me to the standard of forgiveness by which I hold others? That is the craziest prayer ever. Don't pray that. Pray for a car, the Jags win, or something awesome, okay? But, but, when we, um, but when we can fix our eyes on what Christ has done for us, that is the only way that we can release the pain based on what God, based on what others have done to us. Here's the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Um, if, if, you if you want a whole hour on how to forgive, if you want a whole hour on how to forgive, you can go to the podcast, you can go to the website, and we did a uh, Seven Deadly Sins series years ago, and if you look at the one on wrath, I'm going to walk verse by verse through Matthew 18 on how Jesus says this is what forgiveness is, that forgiveness is a canceling of debt. Some of you, the thing that you need to do when you walk out of here is go straight to that podcast and listen to that because you continue to replay the pain instead of releasing the pain. So the way we love people that are difficult in our lives, one is we accept them because God accepted us. Two, we forgive them because we're not remembering what they have done to us. We're remembering what Christ has done for us. And then the third is this, that we patiently endure. We patiently endure. So many of us, Begin to see ourselves. Okay, maybe God has put me in this situation as a minister of reconciliation, and you, I mean, you knock it down by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God for 48 hours with your family. And then you're like, boom, where you at, God? Come on, show up. Guess what? It might take a minute. Do you know how I know? Did God patiently endure with you? Didn't he? I mean, there's some crazy verses. I think it's in Acts 17 when God saves the apostle Paul. Before that, his name was Saul, and he was a religious terrorist who was terrorizing God's own children. And the Bible says that God was pleased to save him. Think about how long he patiently endured Saul. And so what we are called to do is to accept, to accept people right where they are. Not because they're acceptable, because we were acceptable and God accepted us. And to forgive people, not because they deserve it, but we didn't deserve it. And God forgave us. And to patiently endure, why? Because God patiently endured with us. And in those moments, when you can begin to see yourself as a minister of reconciliation in that situation, then guess what happens? Then we can understand that Jesus is the prince of peace, the sovereign ruler over peace, not the just quicker fixer-upper of the situation that we find ourselves in. In fact, here's how Jesus said it himself in John 16, He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Not in your circumstances. In me you may have peace. And then he goes on to say, the next period, in the world you will have tribulation. How do those two sentences go beside each other? I mean, basically this is what he says. Hey, listen, in me you will have peace. Get ready, this is going to suck. What? Some of you are like, that's my Christmas. That in Jesus you can have peace. Because he is sovereign 
over the situations. He's not promising to fix the situations. And he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so what if, what if this Christmas you, you go into your family, you go into your work, go back into your roommate situation, whatever it is. What if you go this year not seeing how all the circumstances could revolve around you the way you would want them. Maybe this year, once again, you won't have that perfect Norman Rockwell uh, kind of Christmas and your Facebook won't look anything like all the ones that you're comparing yourself to. But what if this year you begin to understand that you were placed there on purpose by God for his glory as a minister of reconciliation and if you get abused then guess what that might mean that you're actually a follower of Jesus Christ walking in the places that he's walked and so the Bible says this in the book of James it says is anyone among you sick and I don't think that just means physical sickness it for sure does but I think it's even bigger than that I know that there's a lot of relational pain and a lot of relational sickness here Bay Meadows the sanctuary and so the way that we're going to end this service is in James, it says, is anyone among you sick? Then he should pray. should confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. For the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the Bible says that we are to anoint one another with oil. And so I've invited a bunch of people to pray for us, and all of us have oil. And let me tell you, I don't want to freak anybody out, okay? I grew up Southern Baptist. We didn't do this. We didn't anoint with oil. We anointed biscuits with gravy. That's the only anointing I was a part of. But this is what the word says, okay? It represents the very presence of God. And if you are walking into a situation and you need the prince of peace to rule and reign over what seems like circumstances that are completely out of control, maybe you've got parents that hurt you, maybe you've got prodigal children, maybe you've got that aunt or that uncle that you're sideways with, maybe it's a coworker, and and you don't want to go to the Christmas party, whatever it is, What I'm going to invite you to do in just a second, here, sanctuary, Bay Meadows, everywhere, what I'm going to invite you to do, in just a minute, we're going to stand, and the second I begin to pray, I just want you to come down here. And and you don't have to go on and on about your situations for two very specific reasons. One, God, God already knows. He knows what you're going through. He knows the very words that you're going to speak before they're formed on your tongue. Secondly, the band's so loud, we can't really hear what you're saying that much anyway, okay? So just, you say it, and then God hears it, and then we're going to pray like crazy. We're going to pray that instead of remembering what has been done against you, you would remember what has been done for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that because you have been reconciled unto Christ, that you could be a minister of reconciliation in this season. And in that, you would find a peace that transcends all understanding. So would you please stand with me here and everywhere? If our people that are doing the praying, if you would come forward, and the moment I start to pray, if you need prayer, you just come on forward. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you don't promise just to fix situations, but Jesus, you are peace. Lord, I pray for everybody here that is just weary and heavy burdened. They've gone down this road every single holiday for the last decade, and they're dreading it once again. Lord, I pray for the man and woman, and this is the, this is the first time, Lord, they're divorced. Or for the family, this is the first Christmas without that loved one. Or for the strained marriage. Or for the victim of abuse that has to face her abuser once again during this holiday season. And God, I pray for peace. Jesus, that you would bring a sword to divide out the sin and that you yourself would be peace in that circumstance. And we pray this because if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you need prayer, come on.